0: Good morning, everyone. A couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we started part two, or the second half of the book of Ephesians. And in, in verse one of chapter four, we, we read Paul's appeal, and, and it's here on the screen. And the appeal is to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And, and so here, if you like, is, is the apostles impassioned plea for the church, not only in Ephesus, but also for the church here at Windsor, that, that in light of all that God has done for us and in us, in light of us being some of those things that Stephen has already read out to us earlier, in light of us being saints, I'm humming quite a bit about a feedback, guys. Are you hearing that out there? You are, Fucking great. In light of the fact that we are saints and that we are adopted and that we are chosen and that we are forgiven and that we are redeemed. All those I am statements. In light of what, who we are in Christ, Stephen, in light of our true ID, what Paul then says is, listen, here's what I want you to do. Go and live the life. Go and go and walk it out. Go and run it out. And in terms of Paul, OK, what does that mean? Well, Paul doesn't leave a second guessing. If you want to see Christianity lived out, if you want to see it fleshed out in the everyday, then here's what it looks like. Here is what is involved. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here, if you like, is Christianity 101 humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity. And so here's the question How are we doing? How are we doing? How are you doing? Are these characteristics, which at the end of the day are Christ-like characteristics, are they visible in your life and mine for all to see in the way we relate to one another? In all of our interactions within this church, beyond these walls, Are our actions characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity? What I love about these verses and these instructions is the recognition and the honesty that Paul injects, saying, did you notice he says, and if you were here last week, you'll notice, he says, do you know something? This is gonna require effort if you're going to keep, if you're going to maintain the unity within your local church and between local churches, then you're going to have to work at this. You're going to need to make the effort. And why does Paul want us to do that? Well, in a nutshell, unity matters. Unity matters is really, really important. And therefore, as we read on from where we left off last week, because last week we only read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. So as we pick up at verse 4 this morning, as we read on, Paul now reinforces the fact that unity matters as he writes a sentence that starts in verse 4, goes right through to verse 6 to clarify why is it we've got to work at this? And what he does in these three verses, four, five, and six, is he gives us a basis for Christian unity. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. And although it is only three verses, it's 41 words. I was hoping it would only be 40 words. That would have been really nice, but it was 41 words. But anyway, I'm gonna invite us to stand. Even though it's just three verses, we're gonna stand as we often do for the public reading of God's word. So let's stand together and listen to God's word. If you wanna look it up, that's fine, but it's gonna be on the screen. Here it is. It's almost like a creed that Paul says here. There is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Going to read it again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Grab a seat. Now, anyone, anyone who has been about church or churches for any length of time will be well aware that unity is not always their greatest achievement. Sadly, stories of disunity and experiences of division within churches and between churches and between denominations, between followers of Jesus, they're all too common, they're all too prevalent. And unfortunately, this has become what someone has described as a bit of a blind spot in certain churches and denominations where they, where we, somehow choose to tolerate disunity on one hand whilst professing to be thoroughly biblical on the other. And you see when that happens, there is a huge disconnect. There's a massive contradiction Unity amongst the people of God is a core biblical issue. And yet surprisingly, this unity is often put up with. It's even accepted. And tragically, it's sometimes celebrated. Jonathan Lamb, who, who some of you know is the minister at large, great title of Keswick Ministries. He's also vice president of IFES. He says it is almost scandalous that we have so little concern for the unity of God's people. And here in this letter, and particularly in chapter four, Paul explains how unity is a key part. And this is the bit, Unity is a key part of living the life that is worthy of your gospel calling. If we're going to live this life, if we're going to flesh this out, if we're going to walk this out, if we're going to run this out, then unity has got to matter. And in these verses, those three verses that we just read, Paul sets down, he sets out a reason or a whole bunch of them as to why this does matter, why it's so important. And the fact is, you see, if we do not get this, if we do not see this, if we as a church, as we as individuals do not keep coming back to this time and time again, then there will be a danger of missing it and missing the point entirely. There is going to be a danger of being dogged with division and arguments and splits and suspicion and potential or probable disunity, which amongst other things, confuses and distorts the gospel of Jesus. And even in saying that, I do not underestimate for a moment, and many of you realize this, I do not underestimate for a moment the challenges that do lie ahead with this issue. Unity within a local church and between churches is tricky and difficult enough. But despite the challenges and despite the effort that is required, says Paul, we've got to work at this. We've got to seek and maintain the unity. Remember that Jesus has accomplished. We're not to strive For unity, we're to strive to maintain the unity that Jesus has accomplished. We're to strive to maintain the unity that Jesus prayed for. His last prayer, his high priestly prayer as it's called in John 17, he cries out to his father that his children, his disciples would be one. And Jesus also makes it clear that this is a sure marker that we belong to him. It's by your love for one another that a watching world will know you belong to me. And we're not talking about unity for unity's sake. We're talking about unity for Christ's sake. It's for the sake of the gospel. And so I want to explore these verses together. But as we we do that, we need to rewind for a moment and and recall one, at least one anyway, non-negotiable truth that Paul has already explained. And those of you who have been journeying with us through this series will hopefully remember this. But back in chapter two, as Paul talks about the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, about what we are going to remember in a short while around this table. As Paul talks about this He makes it incredibly clear that at the cross, dividing walls of hostility came crashing down. Barriers that once existed between different people and different people groups, they are dismantled. And now what has happened? We have one new humanity at the cross. One body has been formed How has that happened? As people are reconciled to God at the cross and as people are reconciled to one another at the cross. And so at the cross, people are united. They are recreated, they are joined together. And then writes Paul, they are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives. That is the church. It's all in chapter two. And so Paul says, listen, the people of God at the cross where barriers, walls come crashing down, reconciliation takes place, people, this new one humanity, this new one body, people are united and therefore in urging them to live lives that are worthy of their calling, he says, listen, what I want you to now do as you walk this out, as you flesh this out, as you live this out, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity, to maintain the unity. How? Be humble. Be humble. Be gentle, be patient, be forbearing. And as the apostle teases this out, he he underpins it not so much, or he underpins his argument, uh, uh, not so much by way of argument, but by way of urgent appeal in a sentence that contains these seven ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. The very fact that there are seven has prompted some people to suggest that Paul is highlighting and stressing the idea of a perfect God-given unity because, as we all know, the number seven in Scripture is so significant. And that, that may be the case. But you know what is clear from this sentence? These are all statements of fact. So he begins, there is. There's no question about it. There's no query here. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Although what exactly each of them mean is a little more up for discussion. And so what I want to do in the time left, and I I am conscious of, of time this morning, and hopefully we won't get to one baptism. But uh, I am constantly, but in the time left, we're gonna consider each one in a a little more detail just to, to ground our understanding of Christian unity. Because as I said earlier, unless we get our heads around this, unless we as a church are clear on this, here's the danger. Our actions may send out all kinds of confusing signals because you see what we believe about unity absolutely determines how we live what we believe about unity determines how we live it's it's, it's the case with so much of our faith what we believe about certain things then determines how we walk out this christian life and what i want to do is i want to start with the seventh one I wanna start at the end. I wanna start with this idea that there is one God and Father off all or off us all. And it's particularly the and Father aspect of this phrase that I, that I wanna emphasize. There is one God, that's a given. I doubt there's anybody in here this morning or very many people around the world who call themselves Christians who are going to argue with the fact there is one God. But as Paul encourages us to keep the unity, he makes the point, and it's an important one, that the basis of our unity is not structural, it's not organizational. The basis of our unity is, in fact, relational. It's one God and Father. We are children of God. We have been back to the first week. We have been adopted into his family through Jesus. We, therefore, belong together. And therefore, this is the critical part. We are now brothers and sisters because we are sons and daughters of the Father. Like that's that is, that's is the fundamental starting point. We are brothers and sisters because we are sons and daughters. That cannot be changed. As the saying goes, you can choose your friends but not your family. And so as you look around you this morning, these are your spiritual siblings. As you look around this city and beyond at Christians and other churches who belong to the family of God, who call God our Father, they are our brothers and sisters. And that forces us, or at least it should force us to consider carefully how we treat each other and others. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. We belong to one God and Father. And so our fundamental unity flows from our fundamental adoption into the family of God. And if we don't get that, then we're beat before we start. We are family. But then go back to the first one on the list. One body. And, and you'll know that this image, this idea of the church as a body, it, it's familiar to us. And it's one of Paul's favorites. And he uses it here and he uses it extensively in Corinthians and in Romans. But this is not the first time we've come across this idea, this image in the book of Ephesians. Back in chapter one, we read these words, let me quote, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed Christ to be head over all for the church, which is his body. In chapter 2 and I've already referred to this he, he, we read his purpose was to create in himself in Christ one new humanity thus making peace and then, and then he says one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross you see Christians saints are members of one body Christ is the head of one body not lots of bodies that would be heretical And yet that's sometimes how it seems. And in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and specifically 4, Paul is emphasizing this powerful dynamic reality. And in Romans, he he makes the point that just like every human body has or is made up of different individual parts, it's still one body. And each part, and here's the issue, belongs together. And so in Romans 12, we read, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though we are many, we form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. So we belong together, church. We need each other. It's not about independence, about, it's about interdependence. We benefit from the company of others. And it's not about uniformity. We're not all the same, we're not all hands. There's diversity in unity in the one body. So we're diverse, but we're one. We all have a vital part to play. Despite at times, and here's the thing, despite at times thinking, and this, this often happens in local churches, people look around and think, well, I am not as important as the other parts in this body. As Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that you think are less honorable, you should treat them with special honor. Every single Part here this morning matters. So just because some of us are up front or even serving in the barbecue does not make them any more important, valuable, honorable than you. One body. And that needs to again affect our interaction and our relationship with one another, where Paul says, Do you know how to relate then? As one body. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. One God and Father, one body. Then one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who brings life to the church just like breath brings life to our natural bodies. Without his life, we have no spiritual life. Because the Bible teaches that we are all born again by the one spirit of God. And so it's the spirit of God that unites us through his gift of life. And additionally, as Paul has already made clear in chapter two, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, which we've been singing about this morning, the church is being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives, and I didn't finish this part earlier, by his spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in each of us individually, but he also unites us and builds us and inhabits us collectively. Our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, but together as Christians and saints, we're being joined together to become a holy temple in which God lives by his spirit, the one Holy Spirit. And then do you know what this one Holy Spirit does? This one Holy Spirit then gives gifts in order to serve the church, shared gifts in order to serve one another. He produces fruit, common fruit in our lives so that we can be loving and joyful and patient and kind and gentle and good and self control That's only 8 of one, but you can make the other one up. No, don't make it up. There is a proper other one. What did I miss? Don't know. Faithful. Thank you, Stephen. I missed Faithful. Well done, Stephen. Uh, but please no, I was surprised. But please remember. <laughs> please remember, as the as the Apostle Paul goes on, and this is really important. One Holy Spirit gifts us, produces fruit in our lives. But you know what we can do with the Holy Spirit? And Paul will go on to say this. if you've got a Bible open, look down at verse 30. We will get to this after the summer. But you know what we can do with the Holy Spirit as a church? We can grieve him. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4 as he's talking about the importance of, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, if there is disunity, if there is division between us in here, between us and other churches, the Holy Spirit weeps. Which is why Paul will go on after verse 30 and verse 31 and 32 to encourage the saints. Here's what I want you to do. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead build each other up. Get rid of all bitterness, anger, rage. And we'll get there. But for now, the point is there is one Holy Spirit who is the very breath, the very wrath of God. He's the very presence of God in the church. And so we inhale and we exhale together as we protect and cherish his presence amongst us. No one, no church, no tradition has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. We are united by one Holy Spirit. Just for information, I am hoping to do a series in the autumn, probably in the evenings on the holy spirit who alistair mcgrath describes as the cinderella of the trinity why because he often gets left behind by the father and the son in many people's thinking and in many churches practice and so hopefully in the autumn we're going to do a series looking at the cinderella of the trinity which i think may be the title of that series because i like that but there is one holy spirit and that holy spirit unites us and we badly need that understanding especially around the subject of God, the Holy Spirit. No, not the subject, wrong, the person of God, the Holy Spirit. Right, that's three ones done, four to go. Time's almost gone. And I don't wanna have to rush the pleasure and privilege of uniting around this table. So let let me quickly deal with one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So one hope. Do you know all Christians have a shared future? Nothing to do with that document that came out in Northern Ireland in 2005. All Christians have a shared future, a shared certain hope of eternity with Jesus in heaven, the new heaven, the new earth. And this hope, this shared future hope sits right at the heart of the New Testament. And linking it back to something that Paul has said in chapter one, this inheritance that we anticipate, this hope that we look forward to is secured by the Holy Spirit who is, to quote Paul, a deposit guarantee. Guaranteeing our inheritance. We have one hope. What is the one hope we have? The one hope of Christ's return. The one hope of heaven. Where we are going to live together forever for all eternity. So we might as well get used to liking each other now. There is one hope. One shared certain hope. And then there is one Lord clear reference to Jesus, particularly in the New Testament. And Paul has already explained how salvation and rescue is found in him alone. It's all about Jesus. It's who he is, what he has done for us at the cross, as we'll remember in a moment. Jesus is the one way to the Father, the one way to belonging, the one way to adoption. Our unity is centered around Jesus. And therefore, and I say, I know I'm rushing, there is one faith. One faith, and again, Paul has dealt with this in his letter. Back in chapter two, for it is by grace that you've been saved. How? Through faith. Not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. So there's just one faith, and that in itself is a gift, and it's that one faith that unites you. And then finally, there's one baptism. This one could be controversial. And it has been, it still is. As I say, therefore, for my sake, it's a good job the time's gone. But let me, let me say this. It is unclear. And I'm not ducking this, but it is unclear, and virtually every single Bible commentator you read agrees on this. It is unclear whether Paul here is stressing water baptism or baptism in the spirit or off the spirit. That spiritual baptism that takes place whenever anyone, someone comes to faith in Christ. That baptism that John the Baptist referred to when he said, there is one coming who is going to baptize you with the spirit and fire. And so ultimately for me, the baptism here that is being referred to is baptism into Christ. And that is what unites us. And so Paul in Galatians 3, writing to the church there says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for you were all baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, it's our one baptism into Christ that joins us together. That is what unites saints all around the world together. That's what unites us as saints here this morning. And so I know there's lots more to kind of tease out and chew on, but as we wrap this up, I want you to leave here this morning. This has been my prayer this morning. I want you to leave here this morning with these seven ones ringing in your head one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That is fact. Here's our challenge. Our challenge is to go from here and make every effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace, to do nothing, to say nothing that will destroy or threaten that unity or unity in the family of God. And just to backtrack once more, if you're wondering, well, how do I avoid being part of the problem and be part of the solution instead? Then here's how you do. You be completely humble, be gentle, be patient forbearing with one another. And may God help us. To make every effort to maintain the unity in this local church and between us and other saints. And may God forgive us if we ever say anything or do anything to create disunity or division.